Remember our list that we left off with of uh, seven aspects of wounded imagination that need to be healed. I gave you that list in a certain order. I've changed the order a little bit. I hope that doesn't mess up your notes, but I, I, I changed the order because some of the things that I want to talk about relate to each other more closely, and I had them all jumbled up for some reason. So I want to talk about healing uncleanness, especially sexual uncleanness in the imagination. We talked about that in some detail, so I won't spend a lot of time there. But then uh, number two, the seduced imagination. I'll explain that more. Then number three, the confused imagination, symbolic confusion especially. Number four, the tormented imagination. Number five, the demonic imagination. Number six, the starved imagination. Number seven, the blank imagination. Then I want to talk a little bit about dreams and transference as much as we have time to, but um, I want to just give you some examples of, of the healing of these things, and I also want to talk about the dynamics of the battle uh, that these things in, in ensue when this battle ensues in the mind what it does to us the battlefield is in the mind we all know that any of us that's been walking with the lord for a while we know the battle is in the mind second chronicles chapter 10 verses 3 4 and 5 though we walk in the flesh our warfare is not after the flesh but the weapons of our warfare are mighty through god for the pulling down of strongholds Casting down, the King James Version says, imaginations, but the actual Greek word there is evil reasonings, and bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience to Christ. And, you know, that doesn't happen quickly, and it doesn't happen easily, but it does happen. Jesus said in John six sixty three, the words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. And so Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, about verse 23, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Uh, and, and so the renewing of your mind is a process that has to do with sanctification. Philippians 1, 6, he who has begun a good work in us will finish it. First Peter chapter 5, now after you've suffered a while, the Lord will strengthen, establish, and settle you. Um, the suffering, I'm quite sure, among other things, has to do with battling through the, the, the minefield of your mind, memories, imagination, and the emotions that are attached to all of that. Bringing all that into captivity to Christ is uh, something that can't happen unless you're focused on it as an issue that needs to be, must be, done. It's not that you're fighting for your salvation, but you're fighting for your uh, conquest of, of life, ruling in life by Christ Jesus, Romans chapter 5. So we rule in this life by Christ Jesus. God wants you to learn to rule over the things that have been ruling over you. It's pos Just think, y'all. It's possible to live free from agita agitating passions, 
insecurities, fears, and moral conflicts. It's actually possible. I'm, I'm not there fully, but I'm so, so far beyond where I used to be. But anyway, we all could say that, I'm sure. I've already talked enough about unclean images in the mind. And uh, Mary, you know, I, I, I wish Mary was in here right now. She's busy doing other things, but she is really excellent at addressing this. And in conferences, she really has a lot more to say about it that I think is more effective than what I say. But uh, she has a, a, a very vivid imagination. She has a very Irish uh, her her Irish blood shows up in her imagination. That's a funny thing, by the way. Uh, Germanic and, and English strains seem to have difficulty with the imagination. Also Scottish. Uh, and then you've got the Irish who seem to see everything in living color in f- four dimensions. Uh, that's a whole other subject I better not get into. But when it comes to things jumping into your mind that you don't want, especially unclean images, which are just everywhere now, almost everywhere seemingly. Uh, I mentioned this in in the lecture yesterday. You, You reach up and pull those things out of your head. You have to let your body cooperate with the prayer. And that feels silly. You think Naaman maybe felt silly dipping seven times in water of the Jordan River, a dirty river compared to the clean, beautiful rivers of his land. And he said that. He said, I I could dip in water in my own land that's not so muddy. But the point was he humbled himself and was healed. His servant was a great theologian. His sermon said, which is smarter, to uh, be proud and sick or to be humble and childlike and get healed? Well, he humbled himself. You know, you have to stop trying to wrestle through this intellectually or brain to brain. You're never going to win. You know, it's like holding a beach ball down underwater. Uh, The further you push it, the stronger it comes up. You've heard me say that a dozen times. But you have to become childlike. Jesus said, except you become like a little child, you can't see the kingdom. That doesn't mean you'll go to hell. It means you'll live in a lot of unnecessary hell while you should be, you know, the path of the just is like a shining light that shines brighter and brighter till it reaches perfect noonday. The purpose of God in your life is to help you shine brighter and brighter. And that means cleansing the debris out of the mind uh, that stands in the way. Now, later on, Lord helping us, I want to do at least an hour on the functions of the brain that have been understood for the first time in the last 10 years or so. I mean, more has been learned about the brain in the last 10 years than has been learned in the last 100. And uh, there, there's some things there that would be very helpful for you. But before we ever knew these things about the brain, we saw the Holy Spirit healing people and delivering people, myself included, from strongholds that uh, seemed to not yield to anything uh, on the level of I'm going to change myself, I'm going to grit my teeth and learn to think different. No, it was a childlike humility that just brought these ugly things into the presence of the Lord, let them come up, then reach up with your little hand and grab them out of your forehead like a tissue out of a box, and you pull that dirty picture out, 
and you hand it to the Lord. That works really well with stuff that just jumps in your head through a, an advertisement on television or something you see in passing during the day. For for people who've been involved in pornography, there may be more of a tug of war there of pulling those pictures out. The deeper the picture has become warped and woofed into your psyche, the more difficulty you may have. But that only goes to show how real this all is. And then we talked about the fact that when it comes to an actual sexual encounter that is immoral rather than marital union between a husband and a wife, it has been an immoral relationship, then you're going to be dealing with more there than something you can pull out of your forehead. You're going to be dealing with repentance and breaking the soul tie and releasing that person's spirit and you you know, re- receiving the healing in your own heart uh, for the immoral bond that should have not ever happened. So that's just a little more on healing the unclean imagination. Now I want to move to number two, the seduced imagination. What I mean by the seduced imagination, this is something I've only come across in the last couple of years, but increasingly I'm, I'm praying with people both men and women, but mostly men. That doesn't mean anything. It's just I happen to have only encountered men who are struggling with this, young men, college age and and young adults, who go through all kinds of strange battles. For instance, this is just a for instance, but I've had two or three of these encounters in the last week, so they're fresh on my mind. Uh, Young man engaged to be married, looking forward to his marriage, looking forward to all that 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 entails and all the healthy ways that it entails. And he comes to me trembling because he's had a secret he's been wrestling with for X number of months or a year or so, where he is uh, hearing a voice in his head telling him that secretly he is homosexual and he's never going to be able to successfully... uh, have a marriage because he's lied to himself all of his life and he's got to just face the facts. Now, in every one of these three cases that I've dealt with of this nature in the last week, and they're all from divergent parts of the country, they don't know each other. They're all from different situations. But from best I can tell, none of these young men have any of the background that would normally manifest in in same-sex neurosis um, they they don't they don't have those wounds they don't have those those issues and here's the other thing they don't even have the attraction what they're battling is not the attraction to some other person of the same sex they're battling a statement in their mind that makes them afraid they might have that attraction one day. Now, let me let me just say for any person listening to this who has struggled with same-sex attractions or for a person who has accepted the propaganda, in, in my point of view, it is propaganda, that same-sex attraction is just a, a normal variation of our sexuality and should ne- never be spoken of as a wound or as a n- neurosis. You know, before you get all hot and bothered at me affirming that it is a wound and that it is a neurosis and it can be healed, you just have to understand that after 40 years of experience helping people come out of 
neuroses and wounds and uh, brokenness, uh, myself included, uh, that I, I really don't have much patience with anybody who wants to tell me it's not a wound, it's not a neurosis, and it's just a normal variation. It's propaganda to say that. It's bad science. It's bad sociology, bad psychology, and certainly bad theology. And uh, But I'm with you if you're upset over the subject because the church has failed to meet you in a proper understanding in a, in a, a way that would support and love you to a, a place where you could, you could grow and, and, and thrive and change. It's the word change that gets people flipped out. You know, how dare you say I have to change? Well, I got news for you. All of us have to change. The whole human race has to change. So if the concept of change bugs you, you have not come to real repentance yet. So that's a whole other subject. But uh, breaking the power of this seduction of the imagination, the reason I call it the seduction of the imagination is it's incremental. First, it starts with this statement. How, how do you know you're even marriage material? Huh. And then it goes into, uh, you know, you, you may have some, some same-sex attractions you've never acknowledged. And then it goes from there into all kinds of other stuff. And, and there, there's variations of this depending on the personality, of course. But the point is, this is not a same-sex attraction. It is a seduction of the imagination that incrementally takes more and more territory in the mind until it sets up a stronghold uh, uh, that then begins to lead toward a bondage and a, a, a mental stronghold that uh, can then open the door for actual temptations. So, I mean, that's... that's uh, I'm really kind of put off by the subject. I don't want to talk about it here too much, but... I guess after having dealt with it so often in such a short period of time, I do want to address it in case it is more of a subject for other people. So you'll know how to deal with it. And and in every one of these cases, the the one thing I've told all these young men is you got to stop when this happens. Stop what you're doing. Get somewhere where you can do this discreetly, but say out loud with your mouth so your ears will hear it what God says about who you are. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom the Lord has redeemed out of the hand of the enemy. And uh, and just speak the truth about yourself out loud so your your brain has to hear what your ears are hearing your mouth say. Okay, number three, the confused imagination. This has to do with a, a concept that you've heard me and Mary talk about on numbers of occasions if you've heard us teach on romance or sexuality at all. And that's a phrase coined by Dr. Ruth Tiffany Barnhouse, well-known psychologist and psychiatrist, um, who coined the phrase a symbolic confusion. And in, in that term, she is referring to when a person has an attraction to another person, but what they're really attracted to is a symbol, not the person, but a symbol. And symbolic confusion shows up in all kinds of emotional 
relationships. But I just want to give one example, one that we've given before, but it happened to one of our one of our kids. We got so many, you won't know which one I'm talking about. So several years ago, one of, one of our sons uh, was, we thought, on his way to marrying his high school sweetheart, and they broke up, much to our sorrow. And when they broke up, uh, he he was pretty down for a couple of months, and then one day he bounced in the door, all excited because he wanted us to meet someone that he said uh, he was very, very interested in, and he was getting over his breakup with this new relationship. But in the process of introducing us, he told Mary, he said, doesn't she look like, and then he named his former girlfriend. Well, the girl didn't look anything like his former girlfriend, Maybe a tiny bit. Uh, maybe there were a few characteristics that might, if you stretch the imagination, might work uh, that way. But, but basically what he was actually confessing to us accidentally was that he was not loving this girl who was really there, but he was using her as a screen to project onto in order to reconnect with the girl that he had had to give up. This this is a form of symbolic confusion. In other aspects, and that by the way, that story did turn out well. He, he happened to call her by the name of the other girl a couple of times, and that was enough for this new girl to catch on that he was innocently maybe, but he was innocently hurting her. So she backed away from the relationship, and eventually it did all work out and happy ever after. But... There's other forms of symbolic confusion, many, many different forms. For instance, in same-sex attraction, uh, what is it that a man is attracted to in another man? Quite often it's characteristics in that other man that he wishes he had himself, that he feels disconnected from, that he longs to have in himself, and he becomes attracted to it in another person. And he calls that love. That's not love. That's cannibalism. It's the desire to to take in something that belongs to another person. And it's rooted in envy. Uh, Like one young counselee said to me years ago, I don't want to, to be with Bill. I want to be Bill. Uh, he was saying, I don't, I don't, I hate myself and I don't like who I am and I, I want to be somebody else. And so I'm attracted to the somebody else I want to be, which means I'm not really attracted to, to them. I'm, I'm wanting to cannibalize them. Okay. So that is broken by repenting of envy and working through self-acceptance, which we won't address here because we've addressed self-acceptance in probably three or four different whole series in other places. Now, the, the, the next one, number four, the tormented imagination. This is one that I have to tell on myself about. The tormented imagination is where the enemy gathers pieces of, of broken parts of our past and he puts them together in a new narrative, a new scenario. And he plays that scenario back in our memory and in our imagination. And sometimes the imagination can be nothing but a concept. Others 
certainly have an imagination with vivid pictures in it. For me, it's been a mixture of that. Uh, I, I, I had to tell you that one of the battles that I've struggled with all my adult life, and I'm sure I can find roots of it much earlier than adulthood, but it seemed to get worse in adulthood, was not just the pain of loss of a relationship or, or some some grief, but then I would pick up the pieces of that grief, that loss, that broken relationship, whatever it was, and I would begin to allow it my mind. I don't want to blame it on the devil. I mean, the devil certainly does jump on it and use it, but I was the one who was doing it. In, in a, a childish spirit of self-pity and an undisciplined tendency to weave pictures in my mind out of sad and broken scenarios, I would begin to imagine things that did not happen. Now, this is a form of beginnings of mental illness, uh, believing a lie. But but I would, uh, you know, I would maybe have some conflict with someone that I was close to. And uh, b- before long, I would start imagining that they were talking about me and imagining the conversation. I mean, I would have to be omniscient and omnipresent to know all the stuff that I started thinking I knew about how they were treating me behind my back. And all this was going on in the imagination. And then the imagination begins to be helped by the enemy. And then there, there can be a demonic element that comes in that starts enhancing it with pictures. And if you're not really watchful, and you're not being watchful, if it's gotten this far already, those pictures begin to claim the position of memory when they are not memories. They are imaginations, evil imaginations, evil reasonings, Paul refers to. We're to cast those things down. And once I began to realize that I was nurturing self-pity, that I was nurturing uh, uh, a manifestation of the fallen nature and the flesh that was uh, the very nesting place of the demonic, that if I continued on this route, you know, uh, uh, he who has no rule over his own spirit, Proverbs, I think it's Proverbs 28, read the whole book of Proverbs, you'll find it. He who has no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and has no walls. If you just let your imagination go in these directions, the walls of your identity that God intended to be firm and set so you know who you are and you know who you aren't and you know what's real and you know what's not real and you know how to live in reality and how to resist fantasy and falsehood, that wall begins to break. And if you have no rule over your spirit, you're like one who has no walls. And if you have no walls, what does that mean? The enemy has access to whatever is inside that wall. And so a demonic stronghold begins to be built in the imagination. And uh, you just begin to be convinced. Now they hate me. I can tell you things about... See, obviously, this, among other things, means you have not forgiven them. What if they have spoken of you evil, evil things? Forgive it. That's so easy for me to flip that off to you, I tell you. Don't ever think I don't get a workout. 
<laughs> in practicing these things once I teach on them. That's why I tell Mary I should teach I should teach more on prosperity and um, manifestations of miracles of money and <laughs> stuff like that. I'm joking, you know what I'm saying. But the tor- this is tormenting. This is tormenting. I remember Mary praying with an elderly woman in a meeting one night. I looked across the meeting room and I saw Mary holding this elderly woman and my heart just ached. I didn't know what was going on, but I knew it was painful. And Mary told me later, she said, that dear lady, that sweet grandmother, great grandmother, she said, every day of her life, she practiced on purpose getting a message that her children or grandchildren had been killed in some terrible event, she would go in her imagination down to the wreck site or whatever the tragedy was. She would clearly picture identifying the body. She would go to the funeral home, pick out the coffin. I mean, can you imagine? Just the time this would take, not to mention the agony of putting yourself through it. She'd pick out the coffin. She would go through the the funeral in her imagination step by step. And she told Mary, I do this to prepare myself in case it ever really happens. Well, there was roots there beyond just an imaginative mismanagement of, of the mind. Uh, there, there were roots there that had to be addressed. Uh, a total misunderstanding of the sovereignty of God, a total misunderstanding of the providential purposes of God, uh, a terrible misunderstanding of the character of God. That was all going on there. But one thing that Mary said to her, uh, which Corey Ten Boom taught us, God doesn't give you grace for imaginary suffering. God doesn't give you real grace for imaginary things. He gives you real grace for real difficulty. What he calls for in our imagination is to do what Paul said in Philippians 4. Whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are good, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are virtuous, whatsoever things are pure, If there be any virtue or if anything is praiseworthy, think on these things. Nurture these things. Meditate on these things. Uh, Paul Paul says to Timothy on two occasions, in 1 Timothy and again in 2 Timothy. Uh, Read all of 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and you'll see it. He says, uh, stir up your, your, your pure mind. Stir, stir up your imagination. Picture yourself moving in the things the Holy Spirit has called you to. He said, you want to use your imagination? That's how you use it. I'll have more to say about that later, but um, the, the torment. Listen, so how did you overcome that habit, Clay? By the way, the... <laughs> This wasn't something I had to do this week or week before, but it is something I've had to battle my whole life, my whole adult life. I hate to admit that, but it's just true. Um, I've had to stop and say out loud sometimes, that thought that just went through my mind is not true. It didn't happen. It's not happening now. 
and it's not going to happen. And in the name of Jesus, I decree the opposite. Now, see, this is where uh, you, you overcome the tormented imagination, which is, I guess, another way of saying fear. You know, some of these little uh, acronyms are really helpful. You think, well, they're kind of cheesy, like B-I-B-L-E is a believer's instructions before leaving earth. Well, it's kind of cute, though. I mean, still, it, it is true, but it does get kind of bad when you see it on bumper stickers and Christian bookstores and stuff. It's kind of cheesy. But I'll tell you one that has really been helpful to me is fear, F-E-A-R, false uh <laughs> well, I don't remember how it goes now. False evidence. False evidence. I started to say false information. That's not how you spell fear. F- <laughs> false evidence appearing real. False evidence appearing real. And and when I when I was going through this, and say, well, Clay, why were you going through this? Well, for me, I it was. It was in a time of exceptional spiritual warfare when a lot of relationships in my and Mary's life were being tested and and put through the fire. And I was under a lot of extra stress, and I wasn't taking good care of myself. Speaking of acronyms, HALT, don't get too hungry, too angry, too lonely, or too tired. And I wasn't halting. I was too angry, too lonely, and too tired at the end of many days. And I wasn't taking care of myself wisely. And in that kind of scenario, my imagination began to run away with me. And I began to just see the whole scenario. I can see where it's going to go. I see where this is going to turn out. And I just pictured it. I just pictured it. Um, And uh, our dear friend Lynn Button in England I wish you could hear Lynn tell this. It's hilarious now, but it wasn't funny then. She she tells about how in the early days of her and Ron's marriage, how when he would be late for work, he'd come in, she'd be sitting in the floor crying uh, because she had already figured out that he was killed on the way home and that uh, he was, any minute, she, she was going to get a phone call that had come to collect the body. Or she was hanging clothes one day when her son, who's now in his 30s, was uh, about three or four years old. And he came out. Ron came out and found her in the backyard. She was crying. He said, what's the matter? She said, I've just figured out that uh, Simon's in-laws are not going to like us. (laughs) She, She laughs at it now. But it wasn't funny then. And I'll tell you, if you're suffering from this kind of stuff, uh, it's not funny. And it's it's the beginning of mental illness. And it can be broken. That power can be broken. And uh, you can take authority over it. Now, this I'll tell you, this is where the words of your mouth and the meditations of your heart need to be acceptable in God's sight, who is your strength and your redeemer. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Life and death is in the power of the tongue. You are snared by the words of your mouth. If you'll say to this mountain, be thou removed and be cast into the sea, and don't doubt in your heart, but believe that those things which you say shall come to pass, you'll have whatever you say. Uh, 
they overcame the devil by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony and loved not their life unto death. Whose report will you believe? Uh, you know, the, we will believe the, the report of the Lord. When the 12 spies came back and said, we can't take the land because they're like giant, they're giants and we're like grasshoppers in their sight. And only two of those 12, Joshua and Caleb, they said, whose report are you going to believe? We will re- believe the, the report of the Lord. Uh, remember that uh, faith, we said a while ago, faith has to do with believing God's promise in in the face of opposite evidence. Fear is false evidence appearing real. And uh, Now, that doesn't get off in some kind of uh, Christian science foolishness where you deny the evidence in front of you. you. You don't deny what's in front of you. You just go to a higher authority. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus supersedes the law of sin and death. There is a law of sin and death. It's operable in in the world, in the uh, second law of thermodynamics. Everything is rotting. Everything is, is disintegrating. Everything is losing power. And the only way it can gain power is for a power outside itself greater than it is to come into it. That's called resurrection. If the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, he'll quicken your mortal body also. Well, he'll quicken all kinds of things, including your imagination. So the Holy Spirit brings to your mind the promises of God, and you believe those promises above the the evidence And as your mouth begins to declare out loud what you believe about what God has said about the situation, you begin to speak that out loud and your body has to shut up and listen to what your mouth is saying and your body chemistry has to align itself with the truth of the goodness of God's promise instead of whatever has been pulling you down and you begin to walk in faith and victory and joy and give God the praise and the glory. And you don't, maybe you don't do that quickly, but you get there. You get there. I've preached to myself, you know, Paul told, what was it, Festus? In the King James Version, Paul says, I think myself happy. Okay. <laughs> and he, well, he thought himself happy. I mean, I guess that the context of it is, I think of myself as a happy man, but I like the way that King James Version says it, I think myself happy. I've thought myself happy because I had so much, so much practice thinking myself sad. I could think, I mean, I am a glass is half empty person by nature, uh, by old nature. I don't live in my old nature. Uh, and so uh, I, I have learned how to think myself happy, and uh, that's not that's not positive thinking or mere positive confession, as it has come down to be called by those of us who got frustrated and kind of fed up with kind of a a, a superstitious rabbit's foot version of confessing your faith that we all kind of saw people go through a few years ago. There is a biblical truth to what I'm saying. Obviously, I just said it, so I don't need to say it again. You don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, and if there's a counterfeit, it means there's a real. You don't 
you don't reject the real because there's a counterfeit. You just refuse to walk in the counterfeit and walk in the real. And so when you when you do that, then the spirit see, then you're interacting with real things, not demonically engineered falsehoods or or shadows or uh uh ghosts of the past or demons of the present or specters of the future. No, you're you're interacting with light and truth and things that are solid and things that uh that honor God because without without faith it's impossible to please God. But with faith you're pleasing God because you're honoring his truth, which is the only truth there is, and and by doing that you're giving him substance to work with. What well, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So you begin to have evidence that's invisible rather than the visible evidence that is manifesting fear in you. You begin to uh, give substance to the formation of that which God has promised you he'll do. Does that make, do you understand? And then you, 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 you give God praise and thanksgiving out loud. You begin to give God praise and thanksgiving before the prison doors are open. Give God praise and thanksgiving before the great army that has surrounded you has been defeated. You give God praise and thanksgiving before you see any evidence uh, of, of uh, God doing what he's promised. Okay. Now, the demonic, the demonic imagination, see, the tormented imagination and the demonic imagination can be related. But the reason I, I'm separating the two is, again, this comes out of my own experience. The tormented imagination is made up of things inside my own broken heart and, and memory that need to be gathered up and cleansed and healed. You see how much this relates to forgiving people, forgiving past events, letting things go, making altars and and putting them on the altar and giving them to God. I've had to do that more times than I can name, and sometimes I've had to do it more than once because for some reason, two or three or four times, it didn't take the first two or three or four times. I just had, I kept doing it. I say, well, Clay, you're acting like a pagan. I can't help it. I just there's just some things I didn't do very well, and I just kept doing them till I got it. Uh, but the demonic imagination is different in that it's not necessarily made out of things still floating around inside of you. The demonic imagination is something totally coming at you from the outside. And then you could almost relate that to the seduced imagination. But I've separated those, those two for several reasons. But one of them is the demonic imagination can hit you out of nowhere. Um, Quite often, for instance, I'll, I'll uh, deal with people who are feeling strange temptations they've never had before, and I'll question them about who they've been interacting with lately, and oftentimes it'll come out, not always, but oftentimes it'll come out that that they've got some new person in their office or some new encounter they've got with a person, and that person is operating in a seducing spirit, and it's coming at them with a demonic hook in it from from it's not in the person who's being attacked it's coming from somebody else trying to seduce or or attack them 
in some way. Now, that can be the latent power of the soul, a strictly human psychic thing, but usually a, de- a demon will, if a demon sees psychic energy coming at someone like that, they jump on it and ride it and make it their own toy. That's why you can't move in psychic power and stay free of the demonic, because that realm is not ours to, to take hold of without the Holy Spirit being Lord over it. So uh, another example is right after my initial healing in the early, early 1980s, uh, right after I'd come out of all the sexual brokenness that I was delivered from, I went into a worship meeting to receive communion. And there was a huge cross on the wall. It was a crucifix on the wall, about 12 feet high. And uh, I looked up at the cross when I was about to receive communion. All of a sudden, not in my mind, but hitting my retina. I mean, it was hitting my eyes. Seems It seemed that vivid. Were all these phallic images all over the cross. And, of course, my first reaction was to feel physically sick. And then my next reaction was to think that I should be taken out and shot. And once I worked through all of that and uh, prayed, you know, I got some older, wiser people uh, who had walked this path long before me. And they were not put off by it at all. They, They actually saw it as a positive thing because they said, well, you're not hit from the outside unless you're clean on the inside. The cleaner you are on the inside, the more you get hit from the outside. Well, that was kind of an odd encouragement, I guess. Well, it was, really. And so, but you know what? I didn't go back in there and full of faith and power and command those spirits to leave me and, and get away from me and stop doing that, and they all disappeared. No, this this battle went on, I'm guessing, for it's hard to say, two or three months, maybe longer. And then even two or three months beyond that, it would still come back now and then. And I finally reached the place where I just said, you know, I know what you are, go to hell, and went on about my business. And finally, it lost its power or lost interest or knew I was losing interest. But I just I just disregarded it as having any place. I would not interact with it. I would not give it substance by acknowledging it. And it finally lost its power. If I had taken in the idea that this is coming from me, that if, if I'd begun to be seduced in my imagination by it, uh, I would have uh, ended up under a terrible bondage and needed more help. Thanks, thanks be to God, I didn't do that. Okay, uh, the next one, the starved imagination. The starved imagination. This is someone who has no moral struggles in their mind, and they don't have any demonic narrative going on with the enemy picking up pieces of the past and beating them to death with a new scenario of pain and fear and grief and sorrow and loss. No, there is sorrow and loss, but it's not because of some past event. These are people, and and I, I, I meet them less than I used to, 
but I used to always encounter them in Europe and in in Great Britain, and I still do in America too, but not as often. They tell me I don't see anything inside of myself. My inside is a is a desert. Everything is gray. There's no there's no color. There's no beauty. There's no there's no laughter. There's no meaning. There's no joy. I'll say, well, tell me what what was it like growing up? Well, um, we we were all right. I mean, we didn't. Nobody was abusive. Nobody was cruel. No, nobody hurt anybody. But nobody nobody lived. Life, as one dear lady said, life for me was just one long gray blur. I have no real memories. Don't remember anything because there wasn't anything that was memorable. See, there was there was no no parental interaction. And he, here again, I don't mean to be stereotyping people. I know there's always exceptions, and you don't want to be racially prejudiced about these things, but. So often these people came from a Germanic or a Scottish background or a Scandinavian background where uh, winters were cold and life was hard and living was a, a, a challenge to stay alive and there was no room for, quote, foolishness and what they were calling foolishness, you and I would call joy, the joy of living. Uh, they, they no, no, no foolishness, you know. Shut up and do your work, and you know, don't waste time. Don't. These are the kind of people where uh, you may you may get a thrashing for knocking over a glass of milk because milk was hard to come by. It's not necessarily because of poverty. It's just maybe poverty was part of it. But there's a poverty of spirit, a poverty of living, a poverty of faith in God's prov- providing care. Uh, manifested through the difficulty of the earth itself and the culture takes that on and uh, so often these people come from that they they don't always come from that sometimes they come from middle class American families where there was that attitude or spirit but it could have been inherited from previous generations and brought over on the boat but uh, in in those cases it's, it's, uh, it's in some ways it's always harder to minister to a person who has been deprived of something than it is to minister to a person who has been hurt, though they weren't deprived. So I've told you, I think, just in the previous lecture, where we were talking about a broken leg is easier to mend than an amputated leg. I mean, obviously, you know, there's nothing to work with in when there's nothing there. When, and so when people say, you know, life was just a long gray blur. But having said that, the Holy Spirit hovered over the earth when it was nothing but a dark void in Genesis 1. And uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth became without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit hovered over brooded over the waters and God said let there be light and that's a picture of what he does in the soul of people like this and when we pray with people like this we pray that the same creative energy 
that brought light out of darkness and separated the earth from the water and brought forth color and all kinds of plants and animals and butterflies and lobsters and hippopotamuses and everything that the Holy Spirit would do that same work in these people. It's just amazing to watch the Holy Spirit do that over a period of time in the lives of people who ask him to do that. And you can ask him to do that. If you're a person who's kind of an Eeyore type personality and there's no, you realize you don't enjoy anything. You don't get very high and you don't get very low, not because you're real stable, but because you're just kind of dead. You don't, you don't, you know, blessed is he who does not get excited for he shall never be disappointed. You know, that's not really a good way to live and it's a bad way to die. And so you have to ask for the Lord to to heal that and he will and he does. Now, I'm going to kind of move on a little quickly here because I do want to have a little bit of time to talk about dreams and, and transference, but the last one of the kinds of imagination that that need healing, this last one, I've left it to last because it, it's the one you maybe won't encounter very often, but when you do, it's daunting. And that's the truly blank imagination. Though I just got through talking about the uh, starved imagination. The starved imagination is deprivation. Life was just a long gray blur. Nobody read me books. Nobody told me stories. There was no color. There was no laughter. There was no coloring books. There was no butterflies. There was no blue sky. There was no rainbows. Just long gray blur of adult drudgery with no childhood. This last one is different. Blank imagination is not starved imagination. The blank imagination is an imagination that may have been on its way to whole, healthy life, but got traumatized. Now, I just got through saying that deprivation is harder to heal than a wound, and that's true in 99% of the cases. But when it comes to this particular one, that may not apply. The blank imagination that is blank because it has been traumatized is really not blank. It's it's shut down because of terror, because of trauma. And nothing ever illustrates this more powerfully than a, a situation that happened in Dallas, Texas uh, early, early on. I was not directly involved in this story, but many of the team were, and they they told me this story, so I know it's true, because I trust trust their integrity about it, but there was a woman who came forward for prayer, we'll we'll call her Mary, her name may have been Mary, but she was about 44 years old, she had not laughed or cried in 40 plus years. Now, remember, I said there's no feeling without a picture, and there's no picture without a feeling. Where there are pictures, there'll be feelings, and where there are no feelings, there's no pictures. And so 
uh, when this lady came forward, she said, I heard what you all said about there's no picture without a feeling and no feeling without a picture. But she said, I have no feelings, but I don't have to wonder what happened to me. I know what happened to me. I know the moment it happened to me. She said, I, I, I don't have any emotions. I don't laugh. I don't cry. I watch other women to see how they react to their husbands and their children, and I try to mimic them. But I have no conception of what what's really going on and how to really do it. I mean, can you imagine having to live like that? Well, the team gathered around her. You know, nobody had any quick answers for this. There's no no little neat psychology that somebody learned to, to know how to address this. But she began to tell him. She said, this is what happened to me. And she said, I, I was a fairly happy child. She said, I, I kind of remember being fairly happy until about age four. She said, my mother died. And that in itself is traumatizing enough. C.S. Lewis's mother died when he was eight. And he said, then all the color left my world. Uh, all the meaning, all the beauty left my world. The death of a mother is enough to traumatize a child, of course. But then they lived in Appalachia, and it was July, and it was very hot, of course. And she said they left her mother's body out waiting for the family to all arrive, by, some of them by wagon, and there was no embalming. Now, you, I don't even want you to try to imagine this, but... She said a well-meaning aunt picked her up, picked her up off the floor and took her over to kiss mommy goodbye in the coffin. And, uh, you know, just what a horrible thought. And she said, everything in me, everything in me went dead. Everything shut down, everything. And she said, I can't reconnect. I can't do it. Well, no, none of the team could reconnect her. Nobody knew how to go about doing this. This is where the holy imagination comes in. Now, the holy imagination is far, far greater than any of the other aspects of imagination that we've talked about. So important that we'll spend one whole session just on, in our closing session, on the holy imagination. But they just sat around her praying. And most of the team, they were, they said, we were just praying in the Spirit. We didn't even know what to pray in English. We were just praying, praying in other tongues. And as we prayed in the Spirit and worshiped and looked to the Lord, after about 15, 20 minutes, see, this is why a lot of times we don't get results because we're in a big hurry. Got to, you know, got to hurry up. No, they, they waited before the Lord. They waited. And as they waited, this, this, uh, Mary began to weep softly, but then it, it, she began to laugh. Then she began to cry and laugh and cry and laugh, and then it got kind of happily hysterical. And they just laughed and cried with her, you know, and weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice, and she was doing both, so they did both. And and after it, they got to where they could talk, they said, what happened? And she said, well, I was just waiting before you, knowing nothing was going to happen. You know, no, not much faith, but just trusting God to do something. And she said, I, I saw 
I saw the coffin. I saw the room. I saw, the room was full of sunlight, July hot sunlight. But there standing by my mother's coffin was the Lord himself. And standing next to him was a woman who I knew to be my mother. But she was radiant. She was beautiful. She was alive. And I I was crying when I saw the coffin. But when I saw this radiant woman, I began to laugh. And the Lord just laughed with me. And she said, I, I, as I began to interact, she didn't use these terms. These are my terms. But she said, uh, what she was trying to say was, as she began to interact with real things, real capital R, the invisible real, not the evidence of the deteriorating world of thermodynamics losing its power, but the resurrected power that set in motion the new creation the moment the Lord Jesus stepped out of the tomb, that real world, life began to pour up into her, and her it's like Aslan breathing on the statues in the line that was in the wardrobe. Uh, it's like, you know, winter is thawing out. Aslan's on the move. He breathed into her the breath of life, and she became a living soul again. And, uh, you know, sadly, people have actually challenged that story and questioned as to whether that's not new age. Uh, you know, it's almost, it's like, you know, I mean, nobody's ever said this, but it's like somebody might say, you know, Jesus would turn over in his grave if he knew y'all were teaching that. <laughs> Obviously, Jesus is not in his grave, and neither is this woman's mother in her grave. And... uh it's, you know, Jesus appeared after, uh, you know, before his resurrection, death and resurrection, he appeared with Moses, who's dead. Moses was dead, but he appeared with Jesus. Well, if Jesus had gone to the proper seminaries, he would know that that's new age. That he can't appear with Moses because he can't appear with dead people. You remember when the Pharisees came squawking at Jesus about something and Jesus said, you know, God's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He said, J Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are not dead, in case you guys don't know it. Ah, religion. What a mess. Anyway, I hope this is helping you. Um, let's move on quickly. and just Let me just say a few things about dreams. We have three hours, very introductory three hours. I've never been satisfied with the information we have available in our teaching library on the subject of dreams. It's very introductory, but for anybody who doesn't know anything about it, it's good. But let me just say here that our dreams obviously are strong reflections sometimes of what's going on in our psyche. And when we don't pay enough attention to what's happening in our imagination, and we don't read the signals there correctly, then your heart will start taking the imaginative substance and putting it in dreams. And dreams uh, have to be then understood and properly interpreted. And you cannot buy a book at the grocery store at the checkout counter on how to interpret dreams unless you want to end up really confused and nuts. There's no, there's no handbook for it. There's, there's some principles, but, uh, 
I see more and more books coming out now in charismatic circles, especially on how to interpret dreams. And uh, I'm a little put off by most of what I see there, though I'm sure some uh, some of them, I'm sure, have some good insights in them. But when you start having little booklets that tell you what everybody's dream means in this or that situation, you usually get in trouble. But I don't want to talk about that right now. All I want to try to get across to you is... If you've tended to think all dreams are caused by pepperoni uh, eaten too late in the evening or something like that, you don't understand the whole function of dreams. And we'll, we'll probably talk more about that when we talk about brain function. Because uh, I, I will just say now, there, there's going to be several uh, additions to this series on the imagination that will be added to the final series. So uh, I'm not I'm not going to be able to cover everything now in the little bit of time we've got left. Just one more word about transference. Transference. This is where you transfer unforgiveness onto someone who had nothing to do with what hurts you, but they look like the person who did something to hurt you, and so you don't like them. Or transference is when a, a, a child has been born into a family where the husband doubts the, the validity of the conception of that child as being within the confines of the marriage with his wife, and he thinks that the wife has uh, been unfaithful, and he projects that fear onto that child, even if the child doesn't look like he or she came from another illicit uh, union. That kind of terrible, terrible cruelties have been per- perpetrated by transference. There's good transferences where, for instance, a person transfers a parental need onto a trusted, wiser, older person, and, and they're able to walk through that together without the person bending into and, and making an idol of the older person. I mean, those are just examples. We'll have to get into them in more detail in future sessions together. 